Episode 353 of the Bowery Boys, Harlem Before the Renaissance. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're headed to the years before the Renaissance. And we don't mean the Medici's and Leonardo da Vinci. We're talking the years before the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, we're not talking uh, pre-Leonardo. We're talking pre-Langston, right? <laughs> this is the second part of a two-part series looking at the birth of Black Harlem. So we recommend that if you haven't yet listened to part one, that you check that one out first. Now, in our last episode, we looked at the struggles that African-American New Yorkers faced at the start of the 20th century, particularly when it came to finding a home. But thanks to some innovative black real estate agents and a little help from a few forward-thinking church congregations, a new thriving black community was formed in a rapidly developing area of upper Manhattan, Harlem. So we left the last show in the early 19-teens, more or less, uh, with a newly developed black community. In today's show, we will follow along as that community becomes a, a mecca, the black capital of the United States. The Harlem Renaissance is a cultural movement which describes the flowering of the arts and political thought, which occurred mostly within the black community of Harlem and in particular, the 1920s, which were described by writer Langston Hughes as, quote, the period when the Negro was in vogue, unquote, the moment when the white mainstream turned its attention to black culture. And many scholars place the start of the Harlem Renaissance in the year 1920. But that's actually where we're going to be ending the story today, because we'll be focusing in this show on Harlem while it's still transforming. Because black cultural figures and political thinkers were here in the 19-teens, setting the scene. It was these activities, really, that would make that renaissance possible. Of course, a lot was happening in the late 19-teens. Uh, let's, see, let's see, there's like a world war going on, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan violence against black Americans across the country. Then let's punctuate that by making the sale of alcohol illegal in the United States by 1920, shall we? These are the conditions in which Harlem was made. So this is the story of building a cultural scene from James Reese Europe to Arturo Schomburg and Madam C.J. Walker. And the roots of the civil rights movement were laid here as well, from the soapboxes of Speaker's Corner to the newspapers of the new thriving black press. So let's give a little rub to the stump of the Tree of Hope as we explore the rise of Harlem before the Renaissance. So most of the action that takes place in this show will be set in the years of the 1910s, mm -hmm. the 19-teens. Right, the teens. Are Tom, we saying teens or tens? Tens or teens? teens? We may be going back and forth, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, Tom, why don't you give us just a, a wee little recap of our last show on the birth of Black Harlem? Well, in part one, we discussed how Harlem developed as a village from the earliest Dutch days and would remain for centuries largely, you know, rural and, and concerned with agriculture through the early 19th century, even while at the same time wealthy residents of New York down the island were building lavish estates in upper Manhattan. Things would change dramatically for Harlem and for Upper Manhattan as this area became easier to reach by public transportation in the 19th century, uh, first with those horse-drawn railroads in the 1830s and 40s, and then with the elevated railroads in the 1870s and 80s. And then, of course, development would really speed up once the subway opened in 1904. 
And we spent much of our time on that show actually talking about the populations that would move to Harlem precisely because of those new transportation options. Right. Populations largely moving up from the east side and the lower east side, like the Germans, Eastern European Jews, Irish, Italian. And then around the turn of the century, African-Americans really started arriving in large numbers, mostly settling in the blocks around 135th Street and Lenox. Now, this was due to a number of factors, including an overabundance of housing that needed to be filled. Mm-hmm. And there was this prevailing racist practice of uh, charging blacks more than whites for the same apartments. And thus some landlords relented and allowed African-American tenants into their buildings. And that whole sea change in real estate was really ushered in by enterprising realtors like Philip Payton Jr. and John Nail and others. So in the first decade of the 20th century, this was a neighborhood that was going through great transformation. Yes. And by the 1910s, teens, these blocks here around 135th in, in central Harlem were becoming predominantly black. And African-American churches were arriving here, too, uh, relocating here, many of them from the Hell's Kitchen area, the Tenderloin, uh, building prominent new homes up here, and also investing in real estate themselves, like you mentioned, St. Philip's Protestant Episcopal Church. By 1914, about 50,000 black residents lived in central Harlem, primarily centered around 135th between Lenox and 7th Avenue. And that number would grow by the 1920s to more than 70,000. And although that's an incredibly impressive number and an impressive amount of growth, we should remember that they were still actually a very small fraction of the total population of Harlem and that most of Harlem was still white. Yes, white residents who included quote-unquote, native New Yorkers, and also immigrants from Germany and Eastern Europe, Irish, Italian, like we mentioned, those residents still outnumbered the African-American population here in the early 20th century. And also the neighborhood fixtures and institutions, you know, the, the big shops, for example, down on 125th Street, they were still white-owned. And many of the largest department stores, too, like Blumstein's, were famously rude to their black shoppers. And the same was true with all of the entertainment options that ran up and down 125th Street, including the stage that would become the Apollo Theater. The uh, Hertig and Siemens Burlesque Theater was all white when it opened. As was the Hotel Teresa just across the street from it, um, Mm -hmm. which would not allow black guests until 1940. And that, of course, was the subject of last week's show that you recorded. So that's the landscape so far that Mm -hmm. we've described. Can you give us just a little bit of a snapshot of what just daily life would have been like for a black New Yorker living in Harlem during this time? Well, listen to the way that it's described by Thomas C. Fleming, who was an African-American writer and a reporter and a columnist who was born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1907. He moved to Harlem to live with his father in 1916, and he would eventually make his way out to San Francisco, where he'd become a distinguished reporter and editor at the San Francisco Sun Reporter. In a column that he published in the Sun Reporter in 1997, he described his boyhood in Harlem in the 19-teens this way. There were a lot of poor people living in Harlem then, most of them working people. Most black men worked in service jobs. Cooks, waiters, janitors, boot blacks. Harlem already had the largest black population of any city in the country, but I don't remember a single black bus driver, subway worker, street sweeper, or garbage collector. There might have been one or two. In the three years that I attended public school in Harlem, I never saw a black teacher. They were all white. You did see a few black policemen and firemen, but they were so uncommon that everybody knew who they were. Most black women worked as domestics, not only in New York, but all over the United States. Most of the time, the women were more educated than the men. I think it's because the girls stayed at home longer and listened to their mothers better. 
boys often dropped out of school as low as the fourth or fifth grade, and some didn't go at all. Harlem then had a lot of poor Italian immigrants who were still arriving in large numbers, along with Jews and others from Eastern Europe, and a smattering of people from the Caribbean islands. As these groups came in, the middle-class whites started going out. For self-protection, you had to be a member of a boys' gang in the block where you lived. It might be just for the kids on your side of the street, and right across the street might be a different gang. When you came out of the house, you generally stayed with your fellow gang members. And then he goes on to write about crossing, as a child, crossing the Italian territory to go swimming on the Harlem River and, and really actually risking a street brawl just to get there. And the conflicts, of course, weren't just happening over by the waterfront. The white residents in general, the adults, were pushing back against this, this rising number of black residents. Yeah, many of the white residents were actually desperate to keep Harlem white. And this could have been for personal reasons, um, but also for, you know, perceived economic reasons, however flawed they were, as, as we discussed in the last show. Because residents and realtors saw these buildings as investments, you know, and the arrival of African-American tenants signaled to them that their buildings would be less valuable. And so white landlords and property owners banded together and formed organizations that were meant to discourage black residents from settling in their parts of Harlem. Many of the members of these organizations signed agreements called covenants that stated that they wouldn't sell or rent to black New Yorkers. In the book Harlem, The Making of a Ghetto, author Gilbert Osofsky writes of the property owners who signed these covenants, quote, Each swore not to rent his apartment to Negroes for 10 or 15 years, till when, it was thought, this situation referred to will have run its course. A typical covenant went, quote, The premises, land, and buildings of which we are the owners shall not be used as a Negro tenement, leased to colored tenants, sold to colored tenants, or all other persons of African descent. I just have such a hard time believing that all of this was legal back then. I mean, I, 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 I know that there were no housing laws, but this is just unreal. Oh, it wasn't just legal. I mean, this was a, a document that was filed in the clerk's office down at City Hall. There were many of these agreements and many of these different organizations, including the Harlem Property Owners Improvement Corporation, which was founded by a man named John Taylor in 1910, who would you know, publish editorials and really try to, to rally the white property owners to this cause. And it's a little spooky because they used the language of war and, and the local mm-hmm. sort of white press went along with it. I mean, it's incredible to read these articles that they would publish, letters to the editor, you know, Mm -hmm. um, 110 years later. They're just so offensive. For example, while I was digging around, I found one that was published in the New York Times on July 7th, 1912. To the editor. Can nothing be done to put a restriction on the invasion of the Negro in Harlem? At one time, it was a comfort and a pleasure to ride on the 6th and 9th Avenue elevated, but that is a thing of the past. Now you invariably have a colored person sitting either beside you or in front of you. They are defiantly bold and offensive, with their feet sprawled all over the seat. There is an enormous colony of them around 135th Street and Lenox Avenue, and they are coming closer all the time. Why cannot we have Jim Crow cars for these people? now that they're turning Harlem over to them. Signed, Subscriber. And then four days later, the black newspaper, the New York Age, responded to that letter, and by extension to the New York Times, on its front page. Quote, Everyone has a right to his opinion. To bear hatred against one because of his racial or religious connections, while an unchristian-like spirit cannot be prevented. However, when a metropolitan newspaper unblushingly represents itself as, quote, an advocate of the people's rights, 
and on the other hand seeks to stir up race prejudice, we believe it is in order to point out how inconsistent is the policy of such a journal. And then it really goes on to take on the times for publishing the letter, stating that it, quote, attempts to sow the seed of race hatred whenever the opportunity presents itself. The Times has been active for months, endeavoring to stop the settlement of Negroes in Harlem in large numbers, but to no good purpose. It probably would be of interest to the Times and to the subscriber, quote, to learn that both white and colored real estate dealers who operate in Harlem assert that the class of Negroes occupying the flat is much higher than the class of whites, that Negroes refuse to move into apartments previously occupied by white tenants unless the apartments are thoroughly scrubbed and repapered. For in a majority of cases, the flats are left in an unsanitary condition. It would indeed be quite an education for the editors of the Times to visit many of the Harlem flats occupied by Negroes. They would be emancipated from many of their antebellum ideas regarding us. Wow, that's like the first media clapback of the 20th century here. That's amazing. Yeah. We forget that the um, now progressive New York Times was not always progressive on all issues. Mm-hmm. So that's a good summary of where Harlem, the neighborhood here, is in like the mid-19-teens. And of course, these themes will, of course, continue in the neighborhood for for many decades. But that is only, of course, part of the story here today. And that's because Harlem is more than simply a neighborhood. It's actually bigger than just a place. Yeah. Uh, The idea of Harlem as more than a place was already being felt actually just a few years later. Okay, so just for a moment, we're going to jump forward in time to 1925. Okay. Okay. In March of 1925, the magazine Survey Graphic produced a special issue guest edited by Alan Locke, an African-American intellectual and philosopher who would later be referred to as the Dean of the Harlem Renaissance. So the theme of that entire issue in 1925 was Harlem, Mecca of the New Negro. Locke writes, quote, If we were to offer a symbol of what Harlem has come to mean in a short span of 20 years, it would be another Statue of Liberty on the landward side of New York. Harlem represents the Negro's latest thrust towards democracy. Unquote. So then by 1925, Harlem is already being perceived as this cultural mecca, as this cultural Mm -hmm. capital. This icon, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then how did it get that reputation? How does it become that important so quickly in this short Mm -hmm. period of time? Well, you know, obviously whole careers are made in trying to (laughs) answer and explore this question. And there are many... you have 10 minutes. Yes, and I only have have 10 minutes. And there are many contours even to that answer. But I can give you a short answer, and it's pretty simple. The answer is people. A lot of people come to New York, and actually, generally speaking, come to the Northeast United States via a process that is historically called today the Great Migration. And as we said a few minutes ago, I mean, during the 19th century, there were these waves of immigration to the United States from Europe, mostly from Europe, Germans, Irish, Eastern European, Italian. And many of those new arrivals would make their way up to Harlem. Yeah. And Harlem should be considered as important as the Lower East Side in terms of acting as a gateway. The difference, though, is that just so happens that many of the new residents that would arrive at Harlem were already Americans. I should say that many thousands of Southern African Americans had already arrived to New York in the late 19th century. And in fact, a majority of the black population by 1910 had been born in the South. But what you're describing as the Great Migration really touched on and changed cities throughout the country. Mm -hmm. It was a huge demographic shift. 
Yeah, and in fact, to quote from the landmark book on this particular subject, which I hope many of you have read already, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, quote, it was during World War I that a silent pilgrimage took its first steps within the border of this country. Historians would come to call it the Great Migration. It would become perhaps the biggest underreported story of the 20th century. It crept along so many thousands of currents over so long a stretch of time as to be difficult for the press truly to capture while it was underway. And it seems logical then that, you know, with the start of the war, that northern factories, you know, would seek employees, that that African-Americans would be drawn up to those factories for jobs? Exactly. As, as we said in our Harlem Hellfighters show from just a year ago, Black Americans could not serve with American combat forces during World War One, And in fact, the Hellfighters, who, who were the 369th Infantry Regiment of the National Guard and were made up of black New York men from the whole city, not just Harlem, well, the Hellfighters actually fought alongside the French because they couldn't fight on the American side. Mm -hmm. But this was more than just a pull towards cities with job opportunities. It was also the urgency of leaving southern cities where black residents lived under the thumb of oppression via Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws, which were referred to, uh, which were referenced by that subscriber writing uh, to the New York Times, which were a set of racist laws that essentially legalized segregation and racism in all aspects of, uh, of everyday life. And sadly, as American as apple pie in the early 20th century, a separate but equal way to organize society that was enshrined in law in 1896 with the Supreme Court ruling in the case Plessy versus Ferguson. Now, that decision made a bad situation worse, with black lives deemed inferior under the law and a fear of lynching and terror attacks against black populations, limiting the ability for black Southerners to fight against these injustices. For most in the South, the only salvation was to actually escape. Uh, Wilkerson, in her book, quotes the Yale scholar John Dollard, who then said, quote, Oftentimes, just to go away is one of the most aggressive things that another person can do. And if the means of expressing discontent are limited, as in this case, it is one of the few ways in which pressure can be put. And this great migration, then, this demographic change, would be happening not just in the teen, in the 19-teens, but throughout the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, we're going to, you know, be ending our podcast today right as the Great Migration is pretty much getting started. Historians actually look at it really as two Great Migrations of Black Americans. One that starts around this period and up through the Great Depression, and then a second one that then goes from that point to the 1970s, really. So a phenomenon that moves over 6 million African Americans from the South to the North, the Midwest, and out to the West Coast. So this aspect of the story, then, is not just a New York story. It's shared by, by many other cities in the country. And those cities in Los Angeles, Chicago, these cities obviously have rich districts of Black life in, by the early 20th century. But even still, those cities don't have Harlem, right? Those neighborhoods mm -hmm. are not Harlem. They couldn't be. They don't have that same, they don't have the same cultural legacy, which then begs the question, what is it about Harlem, you know, that makes it Harlem? Well, you know, Tom, this comes back to the whole premise of our entire podcast. <laughs> Harlem is in New York. And that is why it becomes the cultural center of Black American ideas in the 20th century. I mean, maybe that seems like we're rooting for the home team. I mean, <laughs> but it's obvious, you know, when people say New York City is the greatest city in the world, it is this very thing that they mean, right? This magnetism and magic. You know, it, after all, is the biggest city during this time. By 1920, 5.6 million people would live here. Chicago 
which is second place, only had 2.7 million. So not even, you know, half the size mm-hmm. of New York. Uh, between 1910 and 1920, the total population of New York grows about 13%. Well, the black population of New York City grows by 40%. So with more people, you have more support structures, you have more economic and political power, and you have more chances to innovate. And of course, don't forget that by this time, New York is already sort of the cultural capital of the country, right? And the center of Mm -hmm. banking, the center of obviously theater and art. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, that would attract black intellectuals, business people, musicians, all types who can build on the roots of the black community that's already established here. You can actually even build upon the white economic power structure for the benefit of the entire black community in New York. You're also very likely to find sympathetic white leaders in power here to assist in building organizations that would evolve to promote equality. Or organizations like, for instance, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, which formed in New York in 1909, with the Henry Street Settlement and the Lower East Side playing a huge role with that, of course. Then the following year, in 1910, the co-founder of the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois, moved to New York and founded The Crisis, the official magazine of the NAACP, one of a number of black publications like the New York Age and the Amsterdam News that would be circulated internationally, reporting on the struggles of black America. And these new intellectuals and political leaders would bring new energy and attract others to New York and up to Harlem. And we'll visit some of Harlem's cultural leaders in the 19-teens right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, Tom, I thought it would be kind of fun for us to take a, a, a bit of a tour of some of the businesses 
that we might see and interact with during this period here in Harlem. Yes, but remember that the the businesses that dominated Harlem at the time were were mostly white owned, um, especially down on 125th Street. And black business owners really had a hard time competing with many of those stores. In the book Greater Gotham, writer Mike Wallace drives this point home in one sentence. He writes, quote, The black business class succeeded in sectors where whites refused to serve blacks. Hotels, restaurants, insurance, tailoring, undertaking, barbershops, and most spectacularly, beauty parlors. So in being turned away as clients and as patrons in those establishments, the African-American community then went ahead and developed their own, opened up their own stores, some of which were wildly successful. Well, if we're going to start with beauty parlors, which I, I heard you mention, then I assume we need to start here with one beauty queen in particular who becomes one of Harlem's most famous figures, Madam C.J. Walker. That's right. Madam C.J. Walker, who was born into a poor Louisiana family in 1867, uh, and by the time she was about 40, had developed her own cosmetics company, one that would end up employing thousands of independent agents who sold her creams and hair pomades and and many of whom would then operate their own beauty salons using her products and also employing her special hair growing and, and hair straightening techniques. And she would go on to become, of course, one of America's most successful black businesswomen, a self-made millionaire. Yes, and in 1913, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter and business partner, Alelia, moved to New York, uh, where she opened an office and a salon, and her mother stayed at the company's home base in Indianapolis before joining her in New York a few years later. And so I'm assuming that Alilia opened this salon in Harlem. Yes, on 136th Street, um, in the middle of the action. In, in 1913, she bought a townhouse at 108 West 136th Street, and then two years later bought the townhouse next to that, at 110 West 136th Street. These were just off of Lenox Avenue. They would then combine the two homes into one giant Georgian-style red brick mansion with a beauty salon on the ground floor and a beauty college in the basement called the Lelia College of Beauty Culture. Lelia, here for Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, she would change her name to Alelia um, a couple years later. But Initially, then, Alelia would live here on the upper floors and entertain upstairs. And by the way, for this monumental construction project, she hired the architect Vertner Tandy, who you mentioned in, mm, our, yeah. in our last show, in our first show in the series. He was the African-American architect who, along with George Foster Jr., had designed St. Philip's Episcopal Church on 134th Street, which had just been built a couple years before this. And we recorded episode 249 uh, a few years ago on the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And what made her uniquely successful, which is fascinating, is she would advertise in all of the black press and all of her advertisements would actually feature her own face. Yeah, she used her own likeness in her advertisements and even on her packaging, you would see her face. And um, I'm looking at an ad here in the New York Age and the black newspaper that she advertised very heavily in. On January 7th, 1915, there's a picture of her with a headline, Is your hair short, breaking off, thin, or falling out? If so, write for Madam C.J. Walker's wonderful hair grower. And then it um, has the company's address. You can send off money to their main office in Indianapolis. But at the <laughs> bottom, it says... If in New York, call at the Lelia College, 108 West 136th Street, for personal instructions for care of the scalp and hair. Wow, so just calling just calling her up at her, her house. <laughs> just dropping by. <laughs> wow. <laughs> her house, by the way, which she owned, which was also a pretty big deal. Alelia Bundles, who is the great-granddaughter of Alelia Walker, has pointed out that very few African-Americans actually owned property at the time. 
she said, quote, for them to actually purchase a building and a home there was unusual. And by opening this double townhouse designed by Vertner Tandy, they were making a statement about their prominence and affluence in Harlem. Madam C.J. Walker was so wealthy uh, that she would hire Tandy again in 1917 to design her lavish estate, Villa Luaro, uh, which is located up in Irvington-on-Hudson. And, you know, later on in the 1920s, the Walker household here, down on 136th Street, would actually be a central location for salons, for parties. A bit of the Harlem literati would often be entertained here. Yeah, (laughs) which was convenient because it was already a salon. (laughs) For both hair and books. I wonder if they had literary salons in the salon. Salon in the salon. Um. During the 1920s, though, the Walkers would actually move nearby to an apartment because there was a lot of activity in that house. Uh, the upper floors above the college and the salon would become known as Walker Studio. And for one hot year, from October of 1927 to 28, this would be the location of one of the hottest spots of the Harlem Renaissance called the Dark Tower, uh, the site of packed artistic literary soirees attended by the likes of uh, Langston Hughes, W. E. B. Du Bois himself, um, the poet County Cullen, Duke Ellington, and countless others. In fact, the space, the Dark Tower, was named after one of County Cullen's best-known works, a poem published in 1927 that deals with racism and the Black struggle called From the Dark Tower. And can we visit the location of Walker's Salon today? Is it still with us? Uh, The Westchester house is still there, although the 136th Street mansion um, would go on to be leased by the city in the 1930s. It was used as a health clinic, but it would be demolished in 1941. And this, you know, jumping ahead, we're in the full flower of the Harlem literary scene in the late 1920s, but it's already happening back in the 19-teens, back in our story here. The roots of this literary movement are already in place. Yeah, and to visit another notable place in that story, we should just head around the corner to the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library, which had opened in 1905 as part of the Carnegie Library building spree. And like so many other institutions in the neighborhood, the library staff here would remain all white until 1920. But during the 19-teens, here in Harlem, there was a Puerto Rican immigrant named Arturo Schomburg, who had already built up quite a literary and historical collection of his own. Schomburg was born in 1874 in Puerto Rico to a free-born black mother from the island of St. Croix and a German father. He moved to New York in 1891 settled in Harlem, and then became very involved in political movements uh, like the Cuban and Puerto Rican independence movements. But of course, that name, Schomburg, actually lives on in Harlem today for a very different reason, for his book collection. Yeah, he was a scholar and a historian. He was extremely interested in African-American, West Indian, and African scholarship and culture. In 1911, he founded the Negro Society for Historical Research, along with John Edward Bruce. So throughout then the 19-teens, Schomburg would continue writing and editing and, and especially collecting this vast trove of books and scholarship about African American history and culture, collecting this at the same time that the neighborhood was changing and and that the public library then on 135th Street was seeing a very noticeable demographic change itself. But then jumping ahead to 1920, a woman named Ernestine Rose would become the branch librarian here, and she would integrate the staff at the library. She would hire the first African-American librarian in the entire New York public library system. And she started an event in 1921 that was focused on African-American art. Under Ernestine Rose's leadership, then, this library would really expand its collection to focus more on African-American history and culture 
and would engage with Schomburg and other luminaries to form its own Division of Negro Literature, History, and Prints in 1925. And did that include Schomburg's collection as well? Yes, they would acquire his collection then the next year in 1926. And a According to the New York Public Library, his collection consisted of 5,000 books, 3,000 manuscripts, 2,000 etchings and paintings, and several thousand pamphlets. Hmm. And Schomburg would serve as the division's curator from 1932 until he died in 1938. And then two years later in 1940, this would be renamed the Schomburg Collection of Negro History and Literature. Well, how did this old library even have room for this entire new collection? It would have taken up a whole building, just the Schoenberg collection. Well, they would need more space. So stick with me. In the 1940s, the library then expanded north, extending straight through to 136th Street, which required the demolition of another building owned by the city, a certain health clinic. You mean, so... Madam C.J. Walker's mansion, of course. Exactly, which would be demolished, which is also kind of ironic and sad. In a 1994 Streetscapes column in the New York Times, Christopher Gray wrote, quote, The story of the Walker townhouse has elements of contradiction and irony. Madam Walker established an enviable business empire, built in part on the acceptance by black women that their own hair was not desirable. She built a townhouse designed by a black architect that was as good as any east side mansion. It was demolished without any protest or other remark to accommodate New York's most important center for black studies. So Schoenberg is a great example of a flourishing literary scene that's already beginning here in the 19-teens, of course. And so And of course, the other arts are also flourishing in Harlem by this time, including music and theater. Yeah, not, of course, down at the Apollo until the 1930s. But new theaters were opening in central Harlem or being taken over by management, you know, that could see what was going on and change their ways, including the 1,500-seat Lafayette Theater, which was located at 132nd Street and 7th Avenue. The Lafayette opened in November 1912 as a segregated theater, meaning that African-American customers had to stay in the balcony. But the next year in 1913, under new owners, it had actually desegregated and black audiences could sit wherever they pleased. And by 1915, it had its own very acclaimed African-American stock company that was performing classic works here at the Lafayette, which would be called the Lafayette Players which was started by Anita Bush. Hmm. And I have to say, I had a really good time going through the New York Age dramatic Mm -hmm. arts listings, just seeing what was happening on stage in the 19-teens at the Lafayette. It's like gossipy. (laughs) And the Lafayette Theater would be really one of the most central performing art spaces here in Harlem, well into the 20s and into the 30s. We even mentioned it in our New Deal show from last year. That's right, yeah, because it was here at the Lafayette that Orson Welles' Voodoo Macbeth was staged in 1936, which was a restaging of, you know, a reimagining of Macbeth with an all-African-American cast, Um, and that was part of the Federal Theater Project. Um, This theater, by the way, would become a church in the 1950s and would sadly be demolished in 2013, Uh, but if you're walking through the neighborhood today, look for it. It was replaced then by an apartment building called the Lafayette. And if such a prominent place was already opened here in the 1910s, I can imagine that there are other kinds of music clubs hopping hopping all around the neighborhood as well. There were so many saloons and and music halls. I think that, you know, we associate many of those kinds of venues with the Roaring Twenties and with the Harlem Renaissance, but many were opening in the teens, you know, especially as the whole center of the black music and nightclub scene was transitioning out. It was moving out of the Tenderloin and Hell's Kitchen and up to Harlem. Jonathan Gill points out in his 2011 book, Harlem, the 400-year history of the Dutch village to capital of black America, quote, 
1914, the New York Age claimed that Harlem was, quote, infested with saloons, and the next year the Urban League counted more than 100 places in Negro Harlem to drink, dance, and listen to music. There were dance halls, there was ragtime, there was, of course, you know, Scott Joplin was in the mix. Yes, Scott Joplin, who um, became very famous while living in St. Louis, having composed the Maple Leaf Rag, but who moved to New York in 1907 and lived on the West Side before moving up to Harlem, where he lived at 163 West 131st Street. And Greg, you you mentioned earlier the Harlem Hellfighters, the famed all-black regiment that served in World War One under French command. Well, the man who was really instrumental in the formation of that group, of the Hellfighters, was a musician named James Reese Europe. And he had moved to New York in 1902. His pre-war story here in Harlem was extremely eventful. I mean, he worked in nightclubs and theaters and, and he led bands. But he also noticed that the working conditions of black musicians were terrible. And this inspired him to form an organization called the Clef Club in 1910, which was a sort of musicians union and a booking agency sort of rolled into one. The Clef Club would then help raise the standards of working and living for those for those artists throughout the 19-teens. And he would even open up a music school for African-Americans at West 130th and Lenox. He helped so many launch their careers. And then came his valiant war effort in which he not only led the regiment's band, which was renowned, but he fought as a lieutenant in the force, and at the same time basically introduced the French public to jazz music. It's really an incredible story. Now, Tom, I want to take you back to the Lafayette Theater, right in front of the theater there on 7th Avenue today, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard. Right in front of the Lafayette Theater was an elm tree, actually at the corner of 131st and 7th Avenue, a very old tree dating back to a different Harlem, Harlem of the colonial era. The tree would become quite a spot of superstition for many of the theatrical performers that would work on this street who would rub the tree for good luck. Well, that tree couldn't possibly still be there today. I mean, along 7th Avenue? Um, no, it, it's gone. In fact, because they ended up widening 7th Avenue in 1934, and in doing so, ended up cutting down the tree. But the story of this tree does not end there because the stump stayed for many, many years and then ended up at the Apollo Theater, where performers to this day rub the stump for good luck before they perform. Of the Apollo's stump started over at the Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Have, have you rubbed the stump, Greg? Have you seen it up close? Well, I mean, I have actually rubbed the stump for good luck. Now, I did not perform an amateur's night. That would be pretty oh, no. amazing. I wish I had. But no, it was during a tour. They put the stump right up on stage. It's a star. It's one of the stars of amateur night. Yeah. Well, today on the corner, like where the tree used to be, there is a sculpture that marks the spot. But a short distance away from here, okay, so just over one avenue to Lenox and then up on 135th Street, you have another important corner, the Speaker's Corner, where around the springtime every year, speakers of all different types would get up on a soapbox to address the crowd. I would say that New York probably had a, a few of these corners during this period, but mm-hmm. it, it was this one in particular on 135th Street that might be the most famous of all. And when you say that they would get up on their soapbox, are you speaking literally here? Like, were they actually standing <laughs> on a soapbox? A soapbox or a ladder sometimes. Well, you know, in the days before social media and personal audio recordings, this is basically how you got your message out. And it was here... Here at this corner in 1916, that people gathered to hear a newcomer in town, a man named Marcus Garvey. Now, Garvey was born in 1887 on the island of Jamaica, where he really became a political activist for black equality and a radical advocate of trade unions, influenced early on 
by the writings of Booker T. Washington. Now, here in Harlem, he would have kind of a rocky start in 1916, but his ideas would resonate with another man who would also frequently be found here at Speaker's Corner, a man named Herbert Harrison, born in 1883 on the island of St. Croix, who also rose to prominence in the labor movement. And then, and so naturally, both he and Garvey would organize and promote cultural ideas of black self-sufficiency and an opposition to the political organizations that preferenced white workers. Both Garvey and Harrison would form political grassroots organizations that would lay the groundwork for civil rights oriented to the political left. Harrison with the Liberty League, and then Garvey with the much more successful Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA. The first such branch in New York of UNIA formed in 1918. And these were seen as pretty radical political organizations, right, that were taking hold here in Harlem and were sort of pushing back against this white power structure. But didn't many in the in the African-American community also regard them as pretty radical? Yeah, I mean, compared to the ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois and the NAACP, which were, you know, more politically active in changing segregationist policies, but were considered by some to be elitist. But just generally speaking here, just the ideas of all of these men, all these strategies were being debated in black communities throughout the United States, but in particular here in the lecture halls and on the street corners of Harlem. And these ideas lay the groundwork for the modern civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter, even anti-war and gay rights movements all evolve out of this confluence of activists and philosophers. And all of it is being molded and shaped by the burgeoning Black press, of Harlem, including The Voice, The New York Age, which we've mentioned a few times already, and The New York Amsterdam News, which moved to Harlem in 1910. And obviously, with this rise in political power and influence, it would be met, of course, by even more resistance on the other side, Mm -hmm. by a white population that's that opposed it. Yeah, more racial violence throughout the country from the resurgence, the Ku Klux Klan in the United States. But even in particular, here in the New York area, it was also resurging to the influence of a very racist president like Woodrow Wilson. In 1917, over 10,000 African Americans marched down Fifth Avenue in a silent parade partially in response to violence against the Black community in East St. Louis in the spring and summer of that year, 1917. This was probably the first time that many New Yorkers were made aware of Black political organization here in this march down Fifth Avenue. And East St. Louis, we should add, is in Illinois. Um, Mm -hmm. So so this heightened violence against the African-American community was happening throughout the country. It wasn't just specific to the South. Yeah. To quote from the New York Times in 1919, quote, the new new industrial contacts between white and Negro workers aggravate the problem. It is estimated that during the war period, half a million Negro workers migrated from the South to the North. The article then continues to list a series of lynchings and riots against black people across the country just in that year in 1919, collectively referred to that year as the Red Summer. This hostility across the country just reinforces the necessity for places like Harlem to exist. So then by 1920, Were most black New Yorkers living up here in Harlem? Well, it was significant numbers. So by 1920, there were about 152,000 black residents in New York, and about half of them lived in Harlem. Okay. With smaller population centers, of course, still down in San Juan Hill and Hell's Kitchen, but also in another rising 
neighborhood, the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant. But all of these residents, they weren't all from the South. Now, Tom, remember, do you happen to remember Pop Quiz, where Marcus Garvey and Herbert Harrison were from? Do you happen to remember? I believe you said Jamaica, right? And and St. Croix? That's right. And this period marks the increase of new West Indian or Afro-Caribbean and Hispanic immigrants from the Caribbean islands. So that really starts in greater numbers around this period. And today, of course, New York has hundreds of thousands of residents of Dominican origin, Jamaican, Haitian, and their roots trace back here to Harlem over 100 years. So just to underscore then these two shows that we've just done, we've gone from Philip Payton in about 1900 expressing his first interests really in black real estate up here in Harlem to 1920 here, where you have a really diverse community of groundbreaking ideas and culture. Mm -hmm. And we're going to leave our story actually here in the year 1920, which was a momentous year for Black Harlem. And we should add that 1920 was momentous in a lot of different places, in a lot of different different (laughs) communities, because that's the year that Prohibition and the Volstead Act really went into effect. Causing, of course, New York's nightlife scene to take its drinking underground. That same year, 1920, the boxer Jack Johnson opens a nightclub called Club Deluxe in Harlem. It would later change its name to the Cotton Club, a nightclub for white patrons employing black talent. One of many Harlem nightclubs that would then bring white tourists to Harlem and, of course, then popularize black culture with white New Yorkers. But 1920 is a banner year in many other ways. On January 1st, 1920, Louis T. Wright walked into Harlem Hospital to work as the very first African-American physician in any New York hospital. Dr. Wright would eventually move into an all-white set of houses that were located over on 138th and 139th Streets, houses that would soon take on the nickname Strivers Row. Now, one month later, uh, in the New York Age, in February of 1920, they would publish an editorial proclaiming, quote, The Negro residents of Harlem have much to congratulate themselves in the important factor they have become in the greatest city in the world. They should be proud of the fact that they are property owners and residents in one of the most eligible sections of the greater city with all the resources of modern civilization at their command. 1920 was also the year that the Abyssinian Baptist Church would buy land on West 138th Street, just down a bit from Strivers Row, for the construction of their new church building. Stepping into that house of worship, which would open in 1923 and is a landmark today, would be the Reverend Dr. Adam Clayton Powell Sr. He would develop Abyssinian into the largest Protestant congregation in the United States. And his son, of course, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., would become one of the most powerful black politicians in the country. In August of 1920, Marcus Garvey and the UNIA would host the first international convention in Harlem at Liberty Hall with 2,000 delegates from 22 countries. And then that same month, a black journal called The Messenger published an article called The New Negro. What is he? Those ideas would, of course, be continued in the writings of Alan Locke, inspiring his sentiments in 1925, calling Harlem, quote, another statue of liberty on the landward side of New York. Today, central Harlem has three landmarked historic districts and a fourth one over there on Hamilton Heights. But central Harlem and even 
East Harlem, of course, are facing some challenges from gentrification and new development that is threatening a lot of old historic structures that just don't fall into a historic district or under landmark protection. So if you'd like to get more information on that and to sort of check out what those movements are, you can visit safeharlemnow.org and also East Harlem Preservation, or EHP, which is a volunteer-driven advocacy organization that works to protect East Harlem. You can visit them on their Facebook page. You can also find us on Facebook as well, as well as our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have all kinds of images and additional information uh, related to this show, as well as part one in the series, along with links to additional shows uh, that are related to today's topic. Including shows on Scott Joplin, The Silent Parade, Madam C.J. Walker, and The Harlem Hellfighters. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us at patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash boweryboys. Because of our patrons, Greg and I are able to devote all of our time to making the Bowery Boys podcast. We wouldn't be in business without you. We wouldn't be able to make the show. So thank you so much. Head over to patreon.com slash boweryboys and check out the audio extras that are available to you when you sign up and become a patron. Those include the Bowery Boys Movie Club, where we talk about New York City history through classic movies, such as our last episode on Breakfast at Tiffany's, and of course, The Takeout, which is our after-show conversation. We'd also like to give a big special shout-out to patrons Amanda A., Joe W., John D., Marion S., Kyle B., William H., Morgan S., and Faye K., who all recently joined us on Patreon. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this two-part romp through the birth of Black Harlem. And have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs>